It's 7 o'clock in New York, time for NBC to bring you its regular Sunday roundup of news. Tonight you are to hear from Athens, Greece, Ankara, Turkey, London, Berlin, Rome, and Vichy. First to the Balkans, go ahead, Athens. Hello, NBC. This is Peter Tomkin, speaking from Athens, Greece. Not only in Africa, but in Albania, too, the Italians are still being badly beaten. For three whole weeks now, General Cavallero's forces in Albania have been counterattacking Greek positions. These, these Italian counterattacks have been the bloodiest of the whole war, but their only effect seems to have been to weaken the Italian positions. The Italians have been throwing more and more men into the battle every day, and where are they now? <clears throat> they've made no gains, and they've lost an incredible number of men. If anything, they are worse off now than they were before. The biggest of these attacks was the one launched by the Italians the night before last in the central sector, north of Clisura. Time after time, Italian forces attacked the Greek line. Each time, they were picked out by the Greek artillery and butchered, even before they got underway. Then, as they advanced, they were caught between the crossfire of Greek machine guns and rapid-fire rifles. The Italians wavered and retreated, followed by the Greek artillery unit, which tore them to pieces. Behind them, the Italian left, Italians left many dead and wounded. Each time, they gained nothing. Often, they lost ground. Then, in order to stem the steady advance of the Greeks, Cavallero resorted to a new tactic. Heavy rains had swollen the river south of Berat, flooding the more or less level ground. Still, more Italian forces were brought up, backed by mechanized units, tanks, and armored cars. The night before last, by cover of night, with only the light of the half moon, the Italians launched a terrific attack. The Greek outposts soon noticed that something was up. At first, they thought it was many Italian reconnaissance patrols. Cavalry charging through the semi-darkness discovered that they were running into that what they were running into was more like a division than a patrol of Italians. Greek soldiers all round jumped up from their tents and ready-made shelters. In no time at all, they were pouring machine gun bullets into the Italians. I don't know if you've ever seen a night battle, but to me, it is one of the most amazing sights of warfare. A whole hill would suddenly be lit up by the flashes of machine guns and the explosion of hand grenades. There are moments when the fighting is at close quarters, when you don't know which side is which. All you can see is a succession of Fourth of July flashes. When one side eventually retreats, the flashes begin to diminish. When it is all over, the dead and the wounded lie where they fell in the darkness. The rain falls down on them. It isn't until dawn breaks that you can really figure out what's happened. In this case, when dawn broke, the Italians had been pushed back in disorder. The battlefield was covered with dead. According to the latest estimate, the Italians suffered more than 1,500 casualties. And so, once again, the Italians have been badly beaten in Albania, as well as in Africa and along their own coast. The Greeks in Albania continue their slow, relentless advance in spite of all adverse conditions. 
There seems to be nothing which can stop the Italians, can stop the Greeks at present, and nothing the Italians can do about it. But meanwhile, here in Athens, an otherwise dull Sunday was livened up by a couple of lambs today. Correspondents were on the roof during the press alarm, which came at about lunchtime. But we neither saw nor heard anything. Italian bombers apparently attempted unsuccessfully to bomb Corinth. About dinner time this evening, there was another alarm. I was in GHQ at the time. I wandered about the air raid shelter and watched the ministers and high-ranking staff officers go about their business as if nothing were happening. Then I went up on the roof to see if anything was happening. I saw the king's car outside and presumed he too was busy at his work in the special air raid shelter they have set aside for him. Up on the roof, the moon kept coming in and out of the clouds. But again I saw and heard a single thing, absolutely nothing. We now return you to the NBC in New York. Another report from the Balkans comes to us from our reporter in Turkey. Go ahead, Ankara. Hello, NBC. This is Martin Agronsky calling from Ankara, Turkey. Once more, the nerve war, the war of rumor and counter-rumor is in full swing in the Balkans. This time, it's Bulgaria. Reports are pouring into Istanbul that the Germans are moving troops openly into Bulgaria. And though there is no information here in the Turkish capital that this is correct, there is completely authentic confirmation of the news of German soldiers in civilian clothes. The famous Nazi tourists are increasing in number in Bulgaria every day. Two weeks ago, I reported to you that the Nazi tourists in Bulgaria already numbered 6,000 men. Today, their number is estimated at over 10,000. The system of radio telephone posts in Bulgaria, along the Bulgarian and Romanian frontier, which I also told you then had been started, is reported now to be completely finished. The Bulgarian airports, which I told you then were being directed by German specialists, are now practically under 100% Nazi control, with expert ground staffs and airplane mechanics who were recruited in the past few days from among the Nazi tourists, who surprisingly showed up all ready to work. In Romania, the steady infiltration of German troops has continued without letup. Reliable information places the number of German divisions in Romania now at 20. That is over 300,000 troops. The engineering divisions encamped along the Danube near the Romanian frontier have been reinforced. The pontoon bridging equipment, which I told you two weeks ago had been in depots in their camps, is now displayed for all the world to see along the Danube's banks. Certainly the stage is set for a German movement at any moment that Hitler wants to push the button in Berlin. Still, this isn't a new rumor, and it's a good idea to remember that the Nazis are past masters at the art of waging a nerve war, that manufactured crises are the ammunition with which Hitler has achieved political conquests, time without number in the past. Nazi agents have been at work underground in Bulgaria for months now, striving to create internal dissension that will weaken the power of the government. They play on the revisionist dreams of the Bulgars, promising the outlet to the Aegean through Greece, which has been one of the basic Bulgar demands since the Treaty of New Year at the end of the last war. They foster the personal ambitions of the men who oppose King Boris and dangle visions of absolute power before their noses if they will persuade Boris to give in to the Nazi demands. So far, the Nazis have not succeeded in finding a Bulgarian Saisankart, but they are for assistant people, and they will never cease in their search. Meanwhile, the Nazis also worked on King Boris, you don't need to fight with us, they tell him. Only allow us free passage of our troops and you will have everything you want. And while holding out with one hand the sugar of territorial increases, of gains without fighting or suffering, in the other hand they show the Bulgarian king the bitter pill he will be forced to swallow if he resists the Nazi demands. 
and 300,000 German shock troops who sit in Romania across the Bulgarian border, ready to use force if sweet reason fails to prevail. At the same time, the British put their side of the picture to the king. Expect no pity from us if you give in to Germany, they killed Boris. As often as possible, Britain's minister reminds the king of his conversation with Colonel Donovan, warns him not to forget Donovan's words, that America would do everything in her power to ensure a British victory, that in a post-war period, the Bulgars cannot expect any help from America, either if they take Germany's side in this war. And the British, too, produce a threat of force, for it is almost common knowledge now that the British minister Bulgaria, to Bulgaria has warned King Boris that England will be forced to bomb Bulgaria if German troops move into her territory. What Bulgaria will do may decide the future of this part of the world. King Boris knows that if Bulgaria resists, he will have the armies of Turkey and probably the armies of Yugoslavia fighting at his side. But also he must know that Bulgaria may be overrun by the Nazi troops before the force of those armies has a chance to make itself felt. Bulgaria's dilemma is not an enviable one. She lies along the road to the Greek seaport of Salonika, which it seems more and more certain is the real Nazi goal in the Balkans. The British successes in Africa faced the Germans with the first real threat of a British offensive on the continent of Europe since this war began. The German high command realizes, as well as the British, that Salonika today offers the only possible base for a British continental army. If the Germans give the British much more time, England's mastery of the Mediterranean may make it possible for the quick transport of a British expeditionary force to Greece. It seems impossible that Hitler does not see this, and equally with his troops so advantageously disposed and so ready to move, it seems certain that again it will be Hitler who strikes first. In this country, at least, it's the opinion Bulgaria will not fight. The best it's suspected of the Bulgars is the sort of moral resistance that Denmark provided. What Turkey will do if the Bulgars allow the Germans to occupy their country is again difficult to say. Bulgaria is certainly within the sphere of vital interest that Turkey has sworn so often to protect. Yet, it will be the Turkish army rather than the Turkish politicians who will make Turkey's decision this time. All I am allowed to tell you of what the army thinks is that today they reverse the usual maxim and make their motto, the best offense is a defense. And here are two significant last-minute bulletins I was able to confirm late tonight. Bulletin one. The British legation in Bucharest has moved all its records to Istanbul and is expected to end its Romanian representation and evacuate the legation staff within the next 10 days. Bulletin 2. British correspondents in Bulgaria are evacuating their families to Turkey before the end of the week. The British legation in Bucharest is prepared to leave at a moment's notice. This is Martin Agronsky returning you now to the National Broadcasting Company. That was Ankara, Turkey. Now we stop at the British Isles to bring you the news in England. Go ahead, London. This is John McVeigh in London. London has had one short raid alarm tonight. Heavy gunfire and the sound of plane engines were heard in one district. But there are no reports of any bombs having been dropped. Planes have been reported near Liverpool and over East Anglia and the southwest coast. Some German planes were over the east and southeast coasts of England during the day and the east coast of Scotland, but no bombs were reported. Two German bombers were shot down, one by three British fighters and one that came too near a convoy by anti-aircraft fire from an escort vessel. A couple of Spitfires machine-gunned a ship and gun emplacements in the Calais area during a patrol flight. Mr. Churchill's broadcast today is generally recognized in Britain as one of the greatest in his career, certainly one of the greatest in this war. It was a rough, tough, fighting speech, and it inspired the millions of Britons who heard it with the feeling that the longer this war continues, the rougher and tougher they're going to treat their Axis opponents. The fall of Benghazi and the bombardment of Genoa have made most of the British certain that Italy isn't going to stand up for long under the pressure of British attacks. The British felt this afternoon that the tide of war is swinging in their direction. After Mr. Churchill's speech broadcast at 9 p.m. here, 
They felt that victory in the end is certain, even though spring may bring an invasion attempt that will mean some hard pounding for the people of this island. The Daily Express will say in its editorial tomorrow that after Churchill's speech, the British, quote, see certain victory in the simple resolve to conquer or die of four million Britons under arms. Perhaps one of the most interesting points in the speech to observers in Europe was the Prime Minister's statements about Bulgaria and the Balkans. In effect, Mr. Churchill warned the nations like Yugoslavia and Bulgaria that they must act quickly to save themselves if they want British help and any hope of a reconstituted nation after the Allied victory is won. Informed observers here believe that in spite of the German infiltration, Bulgaria could still do a lot to check Nazi progress in that part of Europe. It is pointed out that with isolation impossible, Bulgaria really has had to choose between throwing in her lot with one of three nations, Germany, Russia, or Turkey. The chief force in Bulgaria working for the Germans seems to be certain high army officers who have great awe and respect for the German army. The British would probably prefer that the Bulgarians ask aid from Turkey and work with her in defense of their territory. But if the Bulgarians were to call in the Russians to help them against the German drive, there would probably be no loud complaints from the British. As the Germans move into Bulgaria, they are isolating Yugoslavia, with its army of somewhere between one and two millions of what one high British military authority has called the best fighting men in Europe. If the Yugoslavs are to save themselves from being conquered without ever striking a blow, it seems to the British that they must act quickly, link themselves to their neighbors, the Greeks, the Bulgarians, and the Turks, and act and set up a combination that could undoubtedly give the German high command a problem to think about. With the Yugoslavs in the war, the Italians would have to evacuate Albania quickly to save their troops from destruction, and Italy's collapse might keep the Germans so busy they'd have to delay their Balkan plans. An official admiralty statement issued today gives details of the naval bombardment in which British warships hurled more than 300 tons of shells into the Italian port of Genoa. The heavy units taking part were the battlecruiser Renown, the battleship Malaya, the aircraft carrier Ark Royal, the ship the Germans claimed to have sunk early in the war, and the cruiser Sheffield. The Ansaldo electric works and boiler works were hit, and the port's main power station was badly damaged and set afire. Dry docks, warehouses, and harbor works were pounded by many shells and fires broke out. Supply ships, oil tanks, and railroad yards were repeatedly battered. Navy planes, cooperating with the warships, dropped several tons of bombs and many firebombs in one of the largest oil plants in Italy, the ANIC at Leghorn. Other planes bombed the aerodrome and railroad station at Pisa. This is John McVane in London, returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. This is NBC's regular Sunday roundup of news. Thus far, we've visited NBC reporters in Athens, Greece, Ankara, Turkey, and in London. Now it's time for the news in the Reich. Such news as the census will permit our reporter on the scene there to broadcast. Go ahead, Berlin. Hello, NBC. This is Charles Ronnie from Berlin. After a week of false rumors and vague reports, two new facts have emerged from the French governmental tangle. At first, if reports here in Berlin are accurate, is that Admiral Dolan may be the new French premier, addition. The second is that Pierre Laval, whose friendliness to the Germans was expected to give him a considerable lift toward power in France, is still out. And the latest story from Vichy is that the new cabinet may be formed around Admiral Dolan tomorrow. The French admiral, who among other things, was reported to have flown to Africa with Marshal Ketsman, to have resigned from the Navy, and to have acted uh, merely as a go-between for Vichy and the Paris groups 
was a dark horse. But it's considered practically certain here that he will now take over the leadership of the Vichy government. Marshal Petain, I understand, will continue as a nominal head of the French people, but his powers will be curtailed to allow Admiral Darlin to swing the big stick. Darlin, unlike Laval, has never shown any pro-German tendencies. But on the other hand, he is said to be anti-English. So, in the view of the refusal of Laval to accept another cabinet post under Petain, the selection of Darlin as a man to run the beleaguered Vichy affair would seem to be a compromise. But if my sources here are correct, the selection for the post is by no means a final solution for France. Another French military man who may have a place in the new cabinet is General Hunsinger, who first came into the eyes of the world as one of the signers of the armistice with Germany and Italy. Just what his role in the new setup will be isn't clear, but well-informed German sources say he'll be in the line tomorrow when the portfolios are passed out. This afternoon, he and Marshal Pettan attended a memorial service in Vichy for members of the military academy of Saint-Cyr, who were killed in action. Later, the old marshal took a long walk alone in the Vichy Park. The German radio tonight branded the reports of rioting and disorder in Vichy as untrue. All is quiet in Vichy, according to the Germans. An odd reflection to the topsy-turvy French mix-up appears tonight in the German newspaper Locale Anzeiger. A German writer claimed that the famous Rons Cathedral really isn't French style at all, but is actually German style. He bases this claim on the assertion that the cathedral was built by the Franks, who were really Germans. Now, somewhere in Berlin tonight, a 28-year-old bearded Englishman is sitting alone in a cell in the shadow of death. He is Percy William DeWitt, aviator, painter, and adventurer, who was given the death penalty this week in a special court for espionage. He was accused of being a paid spy whose special task was to secure German military information for the French Second Bureau. The fact that no red posters, which must go up within three hours after an execution for treason or espionage, have appeared on German walls, indicates that he is still alive. His only chance of escaping the axe, or in this case, since the charge was spying, instead of treason, it may be the firing squad, lies with Rice Marshal Hermann Goering. Hitler, you know, entrusted the power of granting pardons to Goering after the war began. However, DeWitt's chances look slim. No one in Germany has been pardoned for espionage or treason since war started. The Germans claim that the condemned man is a relative of the once famous Boer, General DeWitt. And that his father is a British naval officer. His trial was held in secret, but it's said he heard his sentence calmly, bowed to the presiding judge, and thanked him for a fair deal. A woman who was arrested with him in Germany is reported to have committed suicide in prison while the affair was being investigated. If the sentence is carried out, DeWitt will be the first foreigner to be executed here for espionage. Germany's air war against England seems to go on without a let-up. Tonight it's reported that German long-range bombers attacked a British convoy in the Atlantic off the west coast of Spain about noon today. Nine merchant ships were attacked in convoy, and the Germans claim a perfect score. Three of the ships were sunk outright by direct hits. Three others were left helpless in flames, and the remaining three were all heavily damaged. One of the ships the Germans claimed to have sent to the bottom was of about 5,000 tons. The other two were smaller. According to this report, one of the ships left blazing was judged to be a 6,000-tonner. The big German bombers modeled on the lines of American flying fortresses are said to have dived low and used their machine cannons on the ships. 
Earlier, it was reported that a British plane which attacked a German minesweeper flotilla off the Norwegian coast was hit by anti-aircraft fire from the boat. This is Charles Lanius in Berlin. I now return you to NBC in New York. Now to one of our reporters in the Mediterranean for news from Germany's Axis partner. Go ahead, Rome. Hello, NBC. This is David Anderson speaking from Rome. Very few people in Rome heard Churchill's speech from London tonight. Radio reception was very poor at that time. The Prime Minister's speech didn't start before 10 o'clock here, and so it's impossible to give any Italian reaction. Official Italy never reacts until a full text of any speech is available. That will probably not arrive until sometime tomorrow morning. With the fall of Benghazi, a number of questions have been raised in newspaper circles here in Rome. Primary among these, perhaps, is what are the intentions of the British forces under General Wavell? Are they going to try to round the coast of Cyrenaica into Tripolitania, or are they merely going to strengthen their newly acquired positions? About a week ago, well-informed circles in Rome were of the opinion that the British would remain at Benghazi if they succeeded in taking this stronghold. It was felt that any advance into Tripolitania would spread out the forces of General Wavell too much and the risks of defeat from a combined Axis force would be too great. The Italians all along have been claiming that the British were working themselves into a very vulnerable position. The British supply problem will, they say, be one of the hardest to meet. To run supplies from Egypt along the Cyrenaica coast is no easy job, and the Mediterranean always remains as a potent threat to British shipping. The reports here in Rome today speak of continued action south of Benghazi. Whether this means that the British are going to attempt to take the whole of Cyrenaica or continue their drive toward Tripoli is more than can be said here tonight. The Italians are still pointing out that Jerobob stands as an Italian oasis in the desert. The fall of Benghazi has prompted several reactions in the Italian radio. Rome Radio today has been pointing out that the Italians are taking everything the British have to offer. They say it took the combined efforts of the British Navy, Army, and Air Force to accomplish their present successes. This statement is, is in keeping with their perennial claim that the Italians are now fighting this war. They point out that the only real military action is now taking place in North Africa, Albania, and in the Mediterranean between British and Italian forces. But, Rome Radio says, we are proud of the part allotted to us. There is no confirmation available in Rome tonight of the British claim to the capture of General Bergenzoli. Some of you will recall that his capture was assumed after the fall of Bardia. But according to current reports, he escaped in a boat to Benghazi. Neither is there any further news of the purported meeting between the two Axis dictators and representatives of the Spanish government. The Italian Riviera is currently mentioned as the possible meeting place. But, as all meetings involving the two Axis heads, there will be no announcements made until after the meeting. The passage of the Lease and Lend Bill by the House of Representatives was given anything but a warm reception here in Rome. On the other hand, ex-Governor Landon's speech before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee 
was taken as a sign of distinct opposition to the passage of the bill. This morning, the last requiem mass was recited for the late pontiff, Pius XI. Cardinal Schuster, the Archbishop of Milan, officiated at the solemn mass held near the tomb of the late Pope in the grotto of St. Peter's. The effective role of propaganda in a war has never been denied, and the Italians are taking full advantage of this. At present, they're presenting radio broadcasts in 23 different languages. Primary among these is the English, and over two hours a day are devoted to English news broadcasts and news commentators. This is David Anderson returning you now to NBC in New York. That was Rome. Now to our reporter in unoccupied France. Go ahead, Vichy. Hello, NBC. This is Paul Arsenault in Vichy. As is the case yesterday, and has been the case ever since July, when foreign correspondents took interest in Vichy, things are calm and normal as usual. Nothing more sensational than a chimney fire and the collapse of a stone balcony has occurred in the past 24 hours. But that balcony accident might have caused an accident had anyone been under or on it. But not even that happened in a town where, according to foreign rumors, rioting and trouble is supposed to be going on. This morning, Marshal Pitta attended service at Sandwich Church in homage to French cadets of the Sancier Military Academy who lost their life in this and the last war. In the afternoon, Madame La Maréchale attended a benefit concert in D.C., Casino Theater, which was packed by a decisively calm and at times almost lethargic audience. The marshal himself did not go to the concert. On this first spring like Sunday, he preferred a short drive in the country sunshine. But the United States ambassador, Admiral Lay, went to the concert with Mrs. Lay. As people streamed out in a steady flow afterwards, two big cars only waited at the entrance. One belonged to Madame La Marichale, the other to Admiral Lay. Both cars, by the way, were of well-known American make. The only important event of the day was expected, but hardly for today. Foreign Affairs Minister Flambeau's letter to, Mar- to the Marshal relinquishing his post was officially released. At the same time, the Marshal's letter accepting Mr. Flambeau's resignation was also announced. Everyone here expected Flambeau's departure, but one informed circles opined that it uh, would come together with the resignation of the entire cabinet prior to a general reshuffle. As matters now stand, Admiral Darlon, as was intimated before, becomes Foreign Affairs Minister. He keeps his place as Minister of the Navy and becomes Vice Premier. This is the first time in 12 months that one man holds three important cabinet posts at one and the same time. Monsieur Edouard Daladier, a year ago, and until the Norway crisis in March, was Premier, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Minister of the National Defense. Consequently, Admiral Barlow's importance in the government is perhaps even greater than was Vice Premier Pierre Laval's. Of course, no official decree yet designates Barlow as heir apparent or successor to the marshal, as is the case for Laval. But this discrepancy may still be made up for, however, through some special decree from the marshal. Concerning the lease and loan bill just voted by the House in Washington, considerable interest has been aroused over here. Commentators point out that in spite of a strong opposition, the House did not limit presidential power, since the amendments do not touch on the essential basis of the project. The vote passed on the Dirksen motion is regarded here as the result of a surprise vote, which only the absence of a large number of voters rendered possible. The discussions, writes one paper, 
has revealed the firm determination of the United States government to pass a project to which it closely links the safety of the American continent, unquote. The future will show to what degree, and in one matter, the position taken by the United States will influence a European war, writes another commentator. But France must and cannot be otherwise than observe in silence. And he concludes, nevertheless, France has a right to feel towards the United States the gratitude due to, uh, for the aid to her population, unquote. And the papers announced the expected arrival of the Red Cross ship Cold Harbor with a thousand tons of condensed milk, medicine for the hospitals, two tons of vitamins, and 25 tons of children's clothing. Well, there's been a lot of talk about camps recently, a refugee camp for the impecunious foreigners in France. And speaking of camps, we learned that all French boys reaching the age of 20 will pass eight months in youth, in youth camps. Only the physically inept will be exempted, with two to five years imprisonment and 1,000 francs fines for slackers or those who aid them. This little detail reminds me of a number of professional football players in Marseille and thereabouts who found a way of being exempted from military service during the war. Well, a ruling was passed recently by official football tycoons to the effect that if these men were physically inept to serve their country in times of need, they are equally inept today to exert physical and remunerative occupations. Consequently, and henceforth, are they barred from playing professional football. This is Paul Archinon, NBC, returning you to New York. This has been NBC's regular Sunday evening news roundup, reporting tonight from Athens, Greece, Ankara, Turkey, London, Berlin, Rome, and Vichy in unoccupied France. This is the National Broadcasting Company.